Hello, hello, y'all. Hey, it's me, Robin. And before we get into today's episode, I'm here to let you know that the club is open right now for new members. I'm going to take a couple minutes to fill you in on all that the club is offering right now. So if you know for sure you're not interested in joining the club, you're just going to want to hit the forward button a few times until you hear that baffling behavior show jingle. Okay, so the club is a virtual community for families of kids with vulnerable nervous systems and big baffling behaviors. Many families in the club are parenting kids with a history of complex trauma, but definitely not all. Some are parenting kids with vulnerabilities that emerge from their neurotype or their sensory system or their giftedness or their neuroimmune disorder. And of course, some have no idea why their child's nervous system is so vulnerable. The primary purpose of the club and why I've created it the way that I have is connection and co-regulation. Because when I reflect back on my time as a therapist, it wasn't the skills and strategies and tools and techniques I taught parents that mattered the most. What mattered most was how connection and co-regulation strengthened their owl brain so that they could stay more regulated in the face of the chaos in their home. Then they could, number one, actually use the tools, and number two, start to feel a little bit better even before the tools started to work. The club can be accessed online both through your browser on your computer and through an app. And it's open, of course, 24-7. There's a very active forum, a huge video library, and multiple live events every month. Sometimes I teach a masterclass on a specific topic. Sometimes we come together for group coaching or just to ask questions and pick, pick my brain. We have two sessions every month called Connect and Co-Regulates, and those are designed to offer exactly that. There's no teaching, no coaching, just a place for you to be seen and heard by people who get it. Currently, we are also offering once a month bonus sessions for siblings of dysregulated kids. The club is intended to be kind of like a buffet. There is a ton in it, not because you're supposed to do everything in the club. You take what you need when you need it and come back when you're ready for more. If you could use a little extra support, consider joining us. You can read all about all the details over at robingobel.com slash the club. I'll put a link in the show notes And we're open today until the end of the day, Friday, May 3rd. All right, y'all, here's that episode you're waiting for. Hey, y'all, welcome back to Parenting After Trauma. It's me, Robin, and I'm really excited to record today's episode because I'm going to talk about memory and memory processing. And I have this extremely unusual excitement about memory processing theory. Memory processing theory is so important in a way. Memory underlies everything, everything about like being a human on the planet is related to memory and how our brains 
process memory, create memory, retrieve memory, store memories, all the things. So I'm not a memory science expert by any stretch of the imagination. I just find memory science to be super fascinating, especially with, of course, how it relates to our behaviors and particularly our relational behaviors, and then how traumatic experiences impact memory and then ultimately impact behavior. It's real easy. Well, let's not say real easy. It's easier to see how trauma impacts behaviors, but there's this huge kind of missing piece in between those two. And so much of what's happening is that trauma is impacting memory processing, and then that's impacting behaviors. So a long time ago, maybe pushing 10 years at this point, it might've been 2013. I wrote a blog article that was called Trauma Doesn't Tell Time. And some of you have been following me for that long. Some of you, that's why you started following me. That's um, the closest I've ever come to going viral on the internet was that blog article on Trauma Doesn't Tell Time. And I've given lots of workshops and presentations about the theory of memory processing, how it relates to our kids' behaviors. And then I guess it was like about two years ago, I recorded a video on the concepts of Trauma Doesn't Tell Time, and it's still up on my website. You can go watch it if you want to. In fact, some of what we'll talk about in the podcast today will actually maybe might even make more sense if you watch the video because the video includes uh, a couple graphics that of course podcasts can't include. And I also created an ebook that goes along with the trauma memory behaviors video. So you can also of course go and just get the ebook. You don't even have to watch the whole video because the images that I think are helpful are also in the ebook. But I was realizing I've not really ever done anything about memory on the podcast. And I so I want to just record this this episode. It's going to be real similar to the trauma memory and behaviors video. And I think that'll be great because I know we all learn in different ways. And some of you learn better like this, and some of you learn better in video. And some of you might be like me and you like to learn in all the formats. I tend to do literally all the formats. I watch videos and then I listen to the audios and then I like to read it <laughs> well as well and see it visually. So that video series and the accompanying ebook is over at robingobel.com slash video series. If you do want to uh, have the information in today's episode in a little bit more tangible way, either through the video series or in just downloading the ebook. I My interest in memory theory, memory processing science was peaked when I trained in a type of therapy called eye movement desensitization and reprocessing which is really grounded in memory and what I would now call memory reconsolidation theory. I didn't know about memory reconsolidation theory back in 2011. I assume memory reconsolidation theory was a thing in 2011. I just never, I didn't hear that language until many years later. And as you're going to hear in today's episode, there is so much about memory 
and then memory processing theory, memory reconsolidation theory, and the impact of trauma on memory is so relevant to the behaviors that we see in our kids and really the behaviors that we see in everybody including ourselves. So y'all probably know by now that when my interest is peaked in something that's like neurobiological in nature, I like to go dive in to that rabbit hole. And so I did that about memory and continue to be super fascinated about memory. Like I said, I'm not an expert. I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm a social worker who really loves learning about the neurobiology of behavior. So I'm going to take something really complex like memory processing theory and make it make sense for you and maybe just put, you know fill in one more little kind of piece of the puzzle and helping you understand your kids' behaviors, or maybe you listen to help understand your clients' behaviors, or, or maybe you're even learning a lot about your own behaviors and listening to this podcast. So one of the things that I think is really fun uh, with regards to learning about memory is that there is just a ton of misconceptions about memory, right? There's almost this idea that there is this filing cabinet in our head and we you know, open the drawer and we pull out uh, a file, you know, when we're having a memory. Memory is, as you can imagine, so much more complex than this idea of kind of like the proverbial filing cabinet. There's these three parts of memory. There's actually more than this, but these are the ones I'm going to talk about that I think are relevant to really understanding the impact of memory on behavior. Um, but we have... Um, encoding and storage and retrieval of memory. These three processes that occur that go into making up what we just kind of use the umbrella term memory to describe. So the encoding of a memory is what's happening when you have an experience, right? That when you're having experiences, your brain is taking in that process and the millions and million bits of data that's streaming in and and because of that, because of having that experience, a pattern of neurons lights up in the brain. This pattern of neurons happens in like the fraction of a second. And it's the lighting up of that particular pattern of neurons that's activated because of that exactly specific experience that I will call the encoding, the encoding of the experience, the encoding step of memory. What happens next then is the storage or not of a memory. The storing, storing a memory is really just about like the likelihood that a similar pattern of neurons is going to be activated again in the future. So storing, we can think kind of metaphorically of this, you know, this filing cabinet where a memory is getting stored in a specific folder. But what's really happening, what storing really means is how likely is it that a neuronal pattern that's similar to the pattern that was activated during this experience how likely is it going to get 
activate it again. Now, for some things, it's extremely likely that a very similar pattern is going to get activated again, right? Now, y'all know me. Y'all know that I'm pretty um, passionate about my morning cup of coffee. It's not something that I miss out on. In fact, I just went on a little Airbnb trip and I reached out, as I always do ahead of time, to know what the coffee pot situation was. So I knew what kind of coffee to bring. There's nothing worse than like bringing your K cups and they actually have a drip coffee pot or vice versa. So every morning, I have a cup of coffee. So the experience of having a cup of coffee, right? That activates a certain pattern of neurons. And it's highly likely that a very similar pattern of neurons is going to be activated again in the future, right? And eventually, yes, I retrieve that memory the very next morning when I don't have to get out the instruction manual to teach me how to brew a cup of coffee, right? That the previous experience and all the previous experiences were encoded and then they were stored so that a similar neuronal pattern could be retrieved, activated again in the future. Now, how and why neuron patterns are stored in the brain is super complicated, varies based on a lot of things, including the emotional intensity of the experience and or like how frequently you have the experience, right? We need a little bit of emotional intensity for the brain to say, yes, let's hold on to this experience. It's important enough to hold on to and store, right? Like if the brain remembered everything, we wouldn't even be able to retrieve anything because our brains would be so cluttered. Like if you asked me what I had for lunch on March 24th, 1999, I would have no idea. Unless of course, March 24th, 1999 was an extremely uh, unusually intense day, right? In a good or a bad way, but like something really important happened on March 24th, 1999 at lunchtime. And then I'm certainly much more likely to say, well, on that day, what I ate was, you know, a chicken sandwich. I have no idea what I ate for lunch on March 24th, 1999, because my brain didn't store that information. But again, if there had been some emotional intensity that kind of instructed the brain to say like, yes, this is important. We want to hold on to this. We would have really increased the likelihood that that experience would have been stored and then able to be retrieved later. The flip side, though, of emotional intensity, which we'll talk about later, is that if there's too much emotional intensity, the brain can't store it correctly. So hold on to that little bit of tidbit. We'll come back to it later. Retrieval then, I just gave you an an example of retrieval, right? That's the activation of a neural pattern, which is similar to, but not identical to the neural net that was activated in the past. So let's just say I could remember that I had a chicken sandwich for lunch on March 24th, 1999. As I I sat here and recalled that, the pattern, the neuronal pattern that would activate my brain as I'm having that memory of that very important chicken sandwich (laughs) would be similar to 
but not identical to the pattern of neurons that were activated when I actually ate that chicken sandwich. Okay. So hopefully that makes sense. Neuronal patterns are never activated in the future exactly identically. There's a couple of really important reasons for that. We're not going to go into that. Just know they're never exactly identical, uh, but they are indeed very similar. I wanted to pause the episode real quick and read you this testimonial from one club member. This person writes in, the club has been life-changing for me. For me, feeling alone in the stress and the overwhelm of parenting a child with complex trauma has been traumatic. Here in the club, we are finding healing for ourselves by feeling seen and heard and validated, even though we may have come here for our children's healing. Oh, y'all, that is exactly what I'm trying to do in the club, to create a space that's for you that also brings healing to your kids. So the club's open for new members until April 28th. We'd love to have you. RobinGobel.com slash the club. All right, let's get back to the episode. So I think another way to conceptualize memory is to think about how something that happened in the past helps create my experience in the now and then impacts how I'm going to behave in the future. So let me give you a really quick example. A long time ago, when airplane travel was way different than it is now in this post-COVID world, I was doing a lot of traveling and a lot of teaching. And I had two experiences of the airport that I used, my local airport being way busier than usual. On one instance, I was still in security at the time that the flight should be taking off. Now, on that particular day, because the airport was so busy and everybody was caught in like this bottleneck. We, it was so busy. We couldn't get through security that all flights were delayed and I didn't miss my flight. On another experience in the same summer, a very similar thing happened to my husband. I wasn't traveling with him, but a very similar thing happened to him and that the airport was so busy. He ended up in security way longer than would ever normally be expected. And he actually did miss his flight. So even though I wasn't there, I still had my own experience, right? Like I was at home learning about how he missed his flight, all of that. So of course, it's still a memory. Now, both of those experiences are encoded in in that moment. And then my brain, in a process I'm not really aware of, decided that they were important enough to remember. I, of course, don't remember everything about that time I went to the airport where I almost missed my flight. Like I couldn't tell you what I was wearing. I couldn't tell you at this point, I couldn't even tell you where I was going. Um, I couldn't tell you if I got anything to eat or drink though. I probably didn't because I was probably booking it down, right? Like booking through the airport to get there. So I didn't miss the flight. Um, you know, there's so much about that experience that 
I encoded at the time, but they didn't get stored and I can't retrieve those memories now. But of course, what did get stored is what that unbelievably long security line looked like and how anxious I felt and like running, 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 running to the empty gates, right? I remember enough of what happened that that experience is certainly going to impact my behavior in the future. Meaning... I will get to the airport earlier, right? So that experience in the past impacted how I feel and behave in the future. That really is as simple as memory is. Okay, so let's go a little deeper into this. And some of this is going to be where it might be helpful to go grab the ebook because some of the images can help this. Um, but let's go a little deeper now into encoding, right? So we have an experience, there's a firing of a specific neural pattern in the brain. And again, that same neural pattern never fires again twice, but similar neural patterns are fired for similar experiences. And then, of course, the more an experience happens, the stronger that neural pattern, the more likely we are that a similar neural pattern is going to fire again in the future. So for as an example, I have the experience of drinking coffee every single day. And so I have a pretty strong neural pattern of drinking coffee. You've probably noticed because I talk about my morning experience of drinking coffee a lot. And that's because that neural pattern is so ingrained. Now, Neural patterns share neurons. So one neuron can be a part of many different neural patterns. So the firing of one neuron and one neural pattern can prompt another very close neural pattern to fire. So think of it like this. When you forget something... Part of what you do to try to like help prompt your brain is recreate a part of that experience in order to help you remember, right? Like when you've walked, you walk into the pantry and you're like, oh, why am I here? What did I come to the pantry for? And you can't remember it all. So you go back to where you came from, right? Like, Like for me, I would go back out into the kitchen and then that would prompt a part of my brain to fire, which would then help to reactivate in a way the part of my brain that was telling me why I needed to go to the pantry. And so I can kind of, you know, force prompt, you know, these neural firings because neurons are shared by different neural patterns. Okay. Now, during the encoding stage of memory, when the when you're having an experience and you're processing all of the things that are happening in that moment, what has actually happening is that their brain is taking in 11 million, 11 million bits of information. Can that those 11 million bits of information are activating a neural pattern? It's a pattern of everything that's involved in having that experience, both in and out of what you're aware of. And in fact, only of those 11 million bits of data, actually only somewhere between five and 60 of those bits are things you are aware of. Okay. So the ratio of things you're aware of 
five to 60 to things you aren't aware of, 11 million that are still being encoded, right? That's a pretty remarkable ratio of all the things your brain is encoding, but you don't even know it's encoding and potentially storing then that then has the possibility of retrieval. So that five to 60 bits of data, that's what we'll call explicit data. And explicit data is things like knowledge and facts. Explicit data has what we'll call the felt sense of remembering. That's going to um, be important later. It's like the timestamp. The explicit data has the the timestamp of like this thing happened on this date at this time, right? There's this feeling of it happened in the past. And I kind of want you to bookmark that little factoid because that does become really important when we start talking about how does trauma impact memory. Okay. Implicit data then, as opposed to explicit, Implicit data is basically everything else, feelings, sensations, perceptions, sensory fragments, everything else that's happening in an experience that we're really not consciously aware of or attending to. Uh, There's so, again, it's hard to even like conceptualize this because it's 11 million bits of data as opposed to only the five to the five to 50 or 60 that we actually are aware of. It's the explicit data that creates what we are typically talking about when we think about having a quote unquote memory. When we draw upon a memory and there's a picture that comes into our minds, we have this very clear sense of like, this happened in the past, right? Right. There's even this felt sense of how long ago that memory happened, right? Like I can draw up a memory with my son from last year. And it feels different in my body than, for example, a memory of him that happened 10 years ago, right? Like there's just a felt sense. It's kind of hard to articulate. I mean, have you ever said to someone like, oh my gosh, it just feels like that happened so long ago, right? That's that felt sense that was created by explicit data. Okay. The explicit data gives the memories, the timestamp, that felt sense of remembering and that felt sense of like how long ago that thing happened. So you may have heard that the club is open today for just a few days for new members. And I wanted to share with you what this club member said about her time in the club. This member says, I was way more successful handling a stressful situation than I would have been a year ago. And it is truly a result of the material I've learned through Robin and the club. Oh my gosh, y'all. I love, love, love hearing that. There's no way that we can promise that the stress from your kids is going to change because we're just not in control of anybody else but ourselves. But what we can do is work to change how we respond to those stressors. And that's what we do over in the club. We are open for new members from now until the 28th of April, and we would love to have you.
to think about implicit data, what I want you to picture, if you can, is the memory balls from Inside Out. So if you've seen Inside Out, and gosh, that movie is kind of old now, 2015, I think. So maybe not as many people have seen it as they used to when I um, first was kind of developing this metaphor. But in Inside Out, they have this this idea this metaphor of 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 memory balls and there's a pretty decent metaphor for memory memory patterns all these bits of information that kind of come together and form a memory ball or a neural pattern okay so it's like all of it there's all this information and, and it all comes together to form one memory ball or one neural pattern and sometimes that information goes into long-term storage and can get reactivated and retrieved in the future. And sometimes it doesn't. Like sometimes those memory balls get erased, right? And like I already said, like, thank goodness, not every single experience that we have makes it into long-term storage with the ability to retrieve. That would be so overwhelming if all of that information was stored in our brain. So it's really, really good that a lot of a lot of experiences don't make it into long-term storage and into the ability of being able to retrieve them later. Okay, let's look at implicit memory just a little bit further. And then I'm actually going to record a second episode that dives into a very unique piece of implicit memory. That'll come out next week. For this particular episode, what I want you to know about implicit memory is that prior to age three, ex- experiences are still in, in store, encoded, stored, and retrieved, but it's almost all done implicitly. So remember that implicit memory are those sensory, sensory fragments, and we don't really have the felt sense of remembering, but think about babies, right? Like babies don't have this sense of like sense of Oh, I remember that yesterday I had plums and it was so good. I can't wait to eat plums again, right? They're not having this felt sense of having a memory, but babies clearly do create memories, which then of course impacts their expectations about what's going to happen next. Research shows that implicit memory is beginning even in utero, so to stay with the the food, the plum, I think that's what I said was plums. The plum um, example is, you know, when, when my son was a teeny tiny baby and I'd pull out um, the pull out baby food, he wasn't having this explicit thought in his brain of like, mm, yum, I remember when I had that yesterday and I can't wait to have it again. It was so good, Right. He's not having that thought, but he certainly knows what's about to happen next, right? When I get out, when I would get out the spoon and the dish and the jar that looks like plums, right? And if he loved them, he would absolutely be kind of demonstrating to me with his behavior the anticipation of what is, what's about to happen, right? Like he'd be happy and like, oh, oh, yeah, I can't wait for this food, right? Now, he can't wait to be fed the food, which he knows that's about to happen because of the spoon and the dish and the actual food, because there is like, he has a memory of it having happened in the past and that it was good. But again, 
a, 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 an, an older infant, right? A, a baby that's starting solid food, six, seven months old, isn't having this explicit felt sense of remembering that yesterday I had plums and it was good. Okay. The reason that infants remember is because of implicit memory. In implicit memory, those experiences are being encoded, stored, and retrieved, but just not with that timestamp or with that felt sense of remembering. Now, what happens then as babies grow and develop is that it's approximately 18 to 36 months of age, there's this important brain structure called the hippocampus that starts to come online. Now, the hippocampus connects a brain structure called the amygdala to another brain structure called the prefrontal cortex. And again, I do have an image of this over in the ebook. So if you'd like to learn through images, you can go check that out. Um, But you you can see when you look at the image, or even if you just Googled hippocampus, amygdala, prefrontal cortex, you'd see how the hippocampus as a structure has this way that it looks like it's connecting the amygdala to the prefrontal cortex. Now, again, that's another one of those little factoids I want you to just hold on to. This connecting aspect of the hippocampus is going to come, it's going to be important later. One of the things the hippocampus does, it does a lot of things, but a thing specific to memory that the hippocampus does is that it tags explicit memories and then links them together with like the correct implicit information to store one big memory network. So of that 11 million bits of data, five to 60 of them are explicit and the rest are implicit. Part of what the hippocampus does is help them all find each other and store and create and connect up one kind of memory network. So the hippocampus helps those explicit pieces of data connect to all the implicit pieces of data and then offers the memory when the memory is retrieved that felt sense that it that it is a memory it's something that happened in the past so here's another example i'm going to bring to my mind the memory of last year's first day of school versus the first day of school from when my kid was in kindergarten. So that's about 10 years difference, maybe even a little bit, a little bit more. So in normal memory processing on each of those different first days of school, the brain encoded all the data, right? The 11 million bits of information, you know, conscious and unconscious awareness. It's linking up the explicit and the implicit, right? And it's creating one big memory network. So if I looked at a photo from the first day of school last year, right? I would have a memory of last year and my experience in the now, which is having the memory is going to activate a very similar, but not identical neural pattern from the actual day last year when it was the first day of school. Right. And the same thing would happen if I think about the first day of school or saw a picture of the first day of school from kindergarten. And I can notice 
how thinking about last year's first day of school, it feels really different than thinking about the first day of school from kindergarten. Like, I just have this feeling in my body that one was so much long ago than the other. It's the explicit bits of the of the data of the memory that allow me to call up the memory, know that it's a memory, and also have a felt sense of how long ago it was. Hey, I'm jumping into the middle of this episode real quick to share with you what this club member has to say about their time in the club. They say, what an incredible community. It was my first Connection Co-Regulate session just now, and it was so incredible to share stories and experiences. Perhaps it's even more profound being across the world from each other. Oh, I totally agree that the fact that the club has members from all corners of the world really does make the experience more profound. I want the club to give you parenting tools, but more than that, I want the club to undo the sense of aloneness. I want the club to create community and togetherness. And by bringing to people all over the world, we're able to do just that. The club is open from now until Friday, April 28th, and we would love to have you. Okay, so now we're going to go even deeper. Okay, we're going to go one more layer down into understanding memory processing. And we'll look at the difference between a memory, you know, that's encoded, stored, and retrieved that wasn't a traumatic experience. And then we'll look at, you know, how that changes if if the experience was traumatic. So when I have the luxury of teaching this with accompanying like images or or slides or videos, how I teach this concept is that I flash up a picture of my son who is now 16 when he was an infant in the picture, he's 15 months old. And I flash up the picture. And if you want to see the picture, you can go and you can see it over in the video series or in the accompanying ebook. But I flash the picture up while I'm teaching and I tell the story of the picture. And here's the story of the picture. Picture was taken at my youngest brother's. And I only have one younger brother. So my younger brother's um, wedding. And... The picture is so preciously adorable. My son is sitting on my husband's shoulders. So you can't really tell that from the picture. Just I know that because I just, I remember it. And he's drooling. He's got his hands in his mouth. He's definitely teething. He's drooling. You can see the drool. He's so happy. And my older brother took the picture. And as I remember the picture being taken and I remember my younger brother's wedding, I also remember that when he got married at the the wedding venue that him, he and his wife got married at the night before their wedding, there was a kiss concert at the wedding. And so I remember 
all the things that go along with being in a hotel where there's a KISS concert happening. So you can just imagine that. But let me just say that it was really fun. I didn't actually go to this KISS concert because I was doing wedding things. But everyone else in the hotel was going to a KISS concert. So they were the KISS concert kind of people. And they were dressed to go to a KISS concert. And you could see the KISS concert from our hotel like window. So you can probably even tell in my voice, even though we're on audio and you can't see my face, you can probably even tell in my voice how happy this memory makes me, right? Like I think of it, I'm not even looking at the picture. I'm just have a memory of the picture in my mind at the moment. I just having the memory brings up all, all the happiness, right? So as I remember my brother's wedding and my baby son's precious adorableness at the time of this wedding, what happens is like a neural network that has implicit and explicit data really well integrated gets awakened. Right. And so I look at, I look at the picture, I I have the memory and I can remember all the, the facts, right? Like I remember the story. I remember the kiss concert. I remember that my older brother took the photo. I remember, even though it's not in the picture that my son was on my husband's shoulders, right? Like I remember all these facts and the details, right? And I have a felt sense in my body about how long ago this was, which I cannot believe was 15 years ago right? And that's a long time, right? And it feels like it was a long time ago. It doesn't feel like it was maybe possibly yesterday, right? It gets not confusing at all that this was a very long time ago, right? And in addition to me remembering the story and the facts and knowing that it happened a long time ago and having the felt sense it happened a long time ago, I'm also clearly having all the implicit parts of the memory activated too, right? Like the emotions, it was fun, I'm smiling without even thinking about it, right? The memory in my body is that this was a pleasant experience and those feelings come into my body now. Like in this moment, I'm smiling and I feel happy. Now that what's so important to understand here is that because the implicit data with explicit data from this particular experience are integrated, I know that the feelings I'm having in my body right now, the smiling, happy, joyous, like, oh, so cute feelings. Those are feelings I'm having now, but they are about the wedding. The memory is pleasant and I'm enjoying that pleasant experience in my body now. And recording this podcast for you is pleasant as well. But the feelings are different and I'm not confused about which feelings are coming from the memory versus which feelings are happening in the here and now because of what's actually happening in the here and now. So it was a pretty significant experience, right? Like my younger brother's wedding, the KISS concert, all these things made the experience, you know, impactful enough that I encoded, stored, and have the capacity to retrieve the memory, right? Like if it had been unimportant, I wouldn't remember it and I wouldn't be able to retrieve it. But it was important enough and it wasn't traumatic. So the implicit and the explicit pieces of the memory are encoded correctly. The hippocampus helps with that. And what you can think of happening is that 
all of the millions of bits of implicit, they are all touched in some way by at least one piece of explicit. So all the implicit data, which doesn't have a timestamp, all of it gets a timestamp because it's connected to the explicit. And what that means is when I feel happy in my body because of how precious my son was at the wedding, I know that the feelings in my body right now, yes, I feel happy right now, but it's related to that memory. It's because those implicit pieces of data are connected to explicit and they have a timestamp. Now, again, there's an image of this that I think helps over in the ebook. If you want to go check out the ebook or even watch the video, which is going to sound a lot like this podcast because I'm using the same outline to record this podcast, but you can go see the image and that might help you. Okay. I want you to try this on it on your own. Have think of a memory, look at an image, you know, just allow something to come to mind from, from several years ago, if possible, not like a memory from last week or even last month, but maybe from several years ago. Um, and then notice that you have the facts of the memory and you have also the sensations and the feelings that are arising in your body that go along with that memory. But again, you aren't confused that all of a sudden something is happening right now that's causing you to feel those feelings in your body. You know that those feelings are related to that memory. And you have a little bit of a felt sense of how long ago that experience happened, taking into the account that without question, COVID and the pandemic has made our sense of time a little wonky, right? Right. That's like, it's like, was that really two years ago? How long ago was that? That feels like yesterday. That feels like a million years ago. All of that has to do with how our implicit and our explicit and our memory processing and all that stuff got a little bit jumbly because of COVID. So try to, you know, in this experiment, think of something that happened pre-COVID and just notice, notice how the feelings and the sensations and arise, arise as well. And you can feel those feelings and sensations. And you're like, ah, yeah, I had those feelings and those sensations at that time. And yes, I'm having them now as well, but I'm positive they're not about what's actually happening right now. They're related to the memory. That's what happens in typical memory processing. Let's think about what happens or what has the potential to happen to memory processing after a traumatic experience. Okay. Now in this episode, I'm going to focus on experiences that happened after age three, when the hippocampus is helping to create both explicit, um, is helping to create explicit memories and link the explicit and the implicit together. And next week's episode, I'm going to talk about implicit only memories and how implicit memory is formed prior to age three and how that impacts us in the here and now, whether those were good experiences or traumatic ones. But for today, we're talking about, generally speaking, experience that happened after age three, where both implicit and explicit data is involved. So if something traumatic is happening, right, and I sense that my life is in danger, my brain wants me to do what I need to do in order to stay safe and react in a way that keeps me the most safe. So once the brain determines like, uh uh-oh, 
major danger here. And this happens in like a fraction of a millisecond. Then a whole bunch of stuff starts happening in the brain and the body and the mind, and there's hormones and chemicals and all sorts of things are happening that are helping me focus on staying alive. And one of the things that happens during all of that is that the brain intentionally dampens the hippocampus, right? And it's, remember, it's that hippocampus that connects the uh, part of the brain called the amygdala to the prefrontal cortex. Now, the amygdala is a component of fight, flight, freeze. Okay. It's not all of it by any stretch of the imagination. This is all very complicated. Um, but there's aspects of fight, flight, freeze that are, you know, associated with the amygdala. And then the prefrontal cortex is really kind of more like our thinking brain. So the lower parts of our brain are, are faster. They're more um, sensation-based. They're more instinctual. We're not doing a lot of time thinking about acting when we're, you know, when we're using mostly our lower brain. So in a, you know, potentially dangerous experience, the hippocampus very intentionally disconnects kind of that instinctual fight flight brain from the thinking brain. This is so we don't spend a lot of time thinking about what the best thing is to do next, because we don't really have time for that, right? Like if you're in a scary situation, you don't think, you just do. I remember um, driving home from work one day a long, long time ago and coming upon an intersection and can't even remember the circumstances or what was really going on. Um, but I do remember as I got through that intersection, whatever had happened in the intersection was super duper scary. It must be the cross traffic as I'm, as I'm talking this through, I'm remembering it more the cross traffic ran a, ran a red light. So I'm going through the intersection and all of a sudden cross traffic, you know, someone in the cross traffic runs the red light and I don't want my thinking brain in those moments to slow down and think, huh, what's the safest thing to do to get through this intersection alive? I just want to get through the intersection alive. And I remember very consciously being aware after I had cleared the intersection and not gotten hit, like how much my brain had to like process in less than a millisecond to know, like speed up, slow down, swerve right? Like, what do you do to stay as safe as possible? Now, obviously this doesn't always like work. And sometimes the impending dangerous thing does happen. But in that moment, I was so glad that my prefrontal cortex stopped conscious thinking like, huh, I wonder what the best thing to do to clear this intersection safely is, right? Like my, I just reacted and I'm, I got to the other side of the intersection and I didn't get hit. So we'll just assume my brain made a really, really great choice. If I'm in danger, I just need to feel and to react fast, right? So it's so important that the hippocampus goes offline, takes my prefrontal cortex, clunky thinking brain out of the equation and my feeling, sensing, reacting parts of my brain just react, right? Now, um, that's super important. I'm really glad the brain does that. But 
like many things that are great, sometimes there's an unfortunate byproduct. And what can happen is that this brilliant brain mechanism that kind of dampens the hippocampus and prevents um, prevents my prefrontal cortex for getting too involved in what I should do in order to stay alive. If that, if the hippocampus doesn't come back online quickly and get, you know, quickly involved in the memory processing process, then, uh, memory processing gets disrupted and the hippocampus's job, which is to integrate and hook up and link up those implicit and explicit pieces of data, that job doesn't go quite correctly. So all the data still comes in, all the implicit data still comes in, all the explicit data comes in, but it doesn't get connected. They're like puzzle pieces that do have a match, but they aren't, they haven't found each other yet. So we can think about like fragments of explicit data and fragments of implicit data that in normal memory processing would find each other. But because there was a traumatic experience and the hippocampus went offline, normal memory processing gets interrupted. The pieces don't find each other. And then what happens is that the implicit data doesn't get the timestamp. So then what happens next is something happens in the here and now that activates the implicit data of the of a memory from the past and from a disintegrated memory network. So the implicit data becomes activated, it comes back online, it's flooding the body with the feelings and the sensations and the perceptions and the body movements, all that kind of stuff from, you know, the memory. But because memory processing was disrupted, that implicit data doesn't have a timestamp. And so the body believes that those feelings and sensations that are coming alive in the body now are related to now. It gets confused. It thinks, oh my gosh, these sensations that are telling me something really dangerous is happening must be related to something happening right now because it doesn't know that no, in fact, those scary sensations are just a memory of something scary that happened in the past. The body believes it's in danger now. So the thing that caused the the fight, flight, freeze, collapse response in the past, the body believes it's actually happening now. So then the body reacts as if it's happening now. And then behaviors like aggression, lying, stealing, sexually acting out, all these different kinds of behaviors happen in the now, right? And the body feels like there's life-threatening danger happening in the now because it doesn't know that the sensations are actually a memory. Now, here's another tricky part of it is that our brain really likes to write a story that helps us make sense of what's happening and create kind of its own um, subjective experience, right? And so our brain, right, feels like what is happening, these sensations in my body are, they must be related to what's happening now because it feels like it's related to what's happening now. And then it decides that what's happening now is dangerous. Like for example, what's happening now is 
I don't know, dinner is just a few minutes late getting to the table. So the sensations are coming up in the now that are related to the past, but they feel like they're happening now. And are correlated, they evoke behaviors that are fight, flight behaviors, fight, flight, freeze, collapse behaviors. Again, like aggression, um, dissociation. So we, we see our kids and we're like, why is this child having this enormous behavior to something that's a very, very, very tiny problem? Well, there's a couple explanations for this. One of it's a sensitized stress response system, but the other is this memory processing, right? That the thing that happened in the here and now awakened something from the past. And the brain didn't know like, oh no, that was the thing that happened in the past. The brain thinks the sensations that are coming now are are in the now and related to what's happening in the now. And then behaviors of fight, flight, freeze, collapse happen in the now. So I'm positive everyone listening knows the experience of, of being with our kids or really with anyone and watching them react to something that's just completely baffling to us, right? It feels like this enormous overreaction or that, you know, there was just a small misunderstanding with a huge overreaction, or there's this reaction, this behavior that just feels completely irrational, completely over the top. But when you understand that what seems like an overreaction is actually the perfect size of a reaction, because your child's brain feels as though that past trauma is happening right now, then we as parents don't feel as baffled. We don't feel confused. And that helps us stay more regulated in the moment. That helps us respond to our child's problem with more attunement, which tends to mean we, you know, we're able to respond to, to kind of what the real problem is. So let me give another example. I already said something about, you know, dinner's five minutes late. So let's run with that one. You're getting dinner ready it's even clear that you're getting dinner ready. You're actively getting dinner ready. And your child says, I want food right now. And you say, dinner will be ready in five minutes. What happens when your child has the experience of not getting food immediately upon request is that that activates a probably extremely old memory of when it actually was life-threatening to not get food upon request. Now you're a 10 year old, 12 year old, 15 year old, whatever. It's not life threatening to have to wait five minutes to eat food. They, they can wait. They're not, they won't die. Like I know that, you know that and your child's thinking brain knows that too. But if your child ever had an experience where they were in fact, so hungry or so delayed with food, or they were asking for food and it wasn't given to them. And it actually was life threatening that potentially is an experience that's now stored in their memory banks and is in this moment retrieved. So even though they're wildly different, right? Like as you're getting ready to make food and ask your child to wait five minutes, it's wildly different than in the past when they were in a life-threatening situation where not getting the food they needed. It's they're related enough that the memory was retrieved 
but because it was a memory that wasn't tagged with the ex with the explicit timestamp that lets that would tell your child's body like oh i used to be i once was so hungry i thought i might die that happened in the past that's not happening now i can wait 5 minutes to eat food i won't die that that needs that means the sensations of if i don't get food i'm going to die has the timestamp that tells your child this is a memory if those sensations don't have the timestamp because of the traumatic nature of it, now the I have to eat right now or I'm going to die sensations come online and your child thinks that they are related to what's happening right now and they actually really are at risk of dying. And so now there's this enormous fight, flight, freeze or collapse response that to you makes no sense, but to your child and to what's happening in their body and in their memory networks, it makes perfect sense. And you've heard me say a million times, all behavior makes sense. And this is one more reason why it makes sense. And when we know it makes sense, then we can stay a little bit more regulated. And when we can stay more regulated, we are more likely, though certainly not with perfection or hundred percent of the time, we are more likely to be able to respond with empathy. And compassion is still a boundary, but empathy and compassion and regulation with our own owl brains instead of anger or frustration or or punishing the fact that they just like flipped over the table because dinner was going to be in five minutes. Anger, frustration, and even punishment because your child just flipped over the table because dinner was in five minutes instead of right now makes sense. It makes sense that you'd respond with anger and frustration and responding with anger and frustration while it makes perfect sense, isn't helping that memory processing, let's call it a memory processing jam that is leading to your child's reaction in the first place. But when we can respond to these behaviors that are born from traumatic memory reenactment, when we can respond to those behaviors with compassion and empathy and boundaries, they actually create the possibility of, of helping the implicit and the explicit memory that, that are lost, that haven't found each other, where you're creating the possibility of helping them find each other. It's like the possibility of jumpstarting or kind of kickstarting that delayed or impaired memory processing. So we might respond, you know, if, if I can understand what's happening with my kid, I might be more likely to respond with something like, oh, it's so hard to wait even five more minutes for dinner. Waiting feels like you'll never eat dinner again. You may even consider offering a snack, immediately offering a snack, even though dinner is literally five minutes away, right? Or maybe not. You might not offer a snack. That might be an appropriate, you know, decision, but you may just respond with empathy and compassion instead of an angry response that might sound like, oh my gosh, you're being so irrational. You can see that dinner is almost ready. You need to wait. You're not going to die or, you know, punishment because they just flipped over the dinner table and made a huge mess. Now, again, your anger would make perfect sense. There's no shame out of responding with anger. However, it isn't going to help the memory have the opportunity to actually integrate, which could have the potential 
to create some healing in the brain, actual healing in the brain, which might then decrease the likelihood that they'll have this this reaction based out of a trauma um, in the in the future, right? When your child's having a trauma a trauma reaction, like flipping over the table because dinner is, is five minutes from now instead of now, and the caregiver you you respond with compassion and empathy in a boundary instead of anger, the brain is surprised. Your child's brain will be surprised. It's it's expecting anger and a whole nother episode to explain why it's expecting anger. Just take my word for it. When your child is behaving that way, their brain is expecting you to respond with anger and frustration. When you respond instead with compassion and empathy and still a boundary, because it's not okay to flip over the table, their brain is surprised. And it's this surprise. The fact that what happens is different than what they were expecting that creates the possibility of jump-starting the memory processing that would eventually help that implicit and explicit data find each other. And when that memory processing, the, the memory processing that didn't get to happen all those years ago because it was a trauma, when it has the potential to get jump-started now, you're having the you're you're creating the potential that the implicit and the explicit can find each other, so that then in the future, when your child has to wait five minutes, and that memory of 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 how dangerous it can be not to get fed right when you need to, when that memory is activated, it will be more likely to feel like a memory instead of what's actually happening now. So it's not necessarily going to feel good. It'll still feel like a pretty crummy memory, but your child's brain and body will know though that's a memory. I don't need fight flight now. It's a memory and it was sad and it felt bad and I can grieve and be unhappy about it. But I don't need a fight flight freeze reaction because it's not actually happening now. And so then what might happen is when you have to tell your child, you have to wait five minutes to eat dinner right? They're, they might grumble or be disappointed or even unhappy, but that's okay. Those are fine and appropriate expressions of a feeling, right? They can have a feeling that's based on reality, which is like, I don't really want to wait for dinner. And that's a disappointed feeling or a grumbling feeling, but it's not a, I'm going to die if I don't eat right now feeling, which then is of course correlated with pretty big challenging behaviors. This brings me back then to what we talk about on this podcast all the time. Changing how we see our kids changes our kids. Changing how we are interpreting their behavior as a disruption in their memory networks, as opposed to they're spoiled, they can't wait, they're impatient, they're entitled, they're a bully, all the other reasons that would make sense to explain that behavior, but it's really, they're just not true. What's true is that their memory processing has been disrupted and they're behaving in a way that makes perfect sense based on what's happening in their neurobiology, right? And when we change how how we see our kids, that changes our kids. And there's a moment there where memory processing might just get jump started. And even if that doesn't happen, the next possibility of thing that the next thing that does happen though is that 
our kids over time will be able to see themselves for who they really are and who they really are as a child who's struggling. They're not a child who's bad. They're a child who's struggling and is swept away and needs help. And a child who believes that they're struggling and has been swept away by um, feelings and just needs help, they ultimately, they end up behaving differently than a child who just thinks they're bad. When we think we're bad, we, we have behaviors that match, I'm bad. When we, ha- when we have a belief of sometimes I struggle and I need help, we eventually shift our behaviors to match that. And the behaviors of a child who knows that they're a struggling child who needs help are very different than the behaviors of a child who just believes they're bad. Woo, holy smokes, y'all. Okay, so I don't know how long I've been recording. I should keep track of this, but it's been a lot longer than what I anticipated. I'm positive of that. This is a lot of information to put in one podcast episode. So let me remind you, I basically used my notes from when I created a video based on the same topic that is over on my website. You can access it for free. The video is closed captioned and it has um, images that really can help the learning and help it make sense. In addition, there's a free ebook you can download. So if you were like, oh my gosh, this information is amazing, but I'll never remember any of it. <laughs> head over to my website, go to robingobel.com slash video series. And again, you can sign up to watch the video series and then get the ebook. So you can help your brain encode and store this information better. So you'll be more likely to be able to retrieve the information that I just taught you in this podcast at some point in the future. RobinGlobal.com slash video series. Now, if you are loving all of the neurobiology tidbits that I give you in this podcast, and you also would like some more support and in integrating all this information into your real life, there are a couple ways you can do that. One is if you're a parent or a caregiver, um, or you're a professional who supports parents or caregivers, you can come and join me in the club when it is open for new members. The club is a membership community that has a huge educational on-demand library. It has a super active members forum, and we have three, usually at least three live meetings a month. And so because we're actually hanging out together and I'm very, very active in the forum, I respond to probably 80% of the posts. And then my team is always catching the rest of them. Um, Because I'm so active in the forum, I get to help you um, take this information and actually like make it useful in your life. So if you're finding you need that, like, oh, I love all this information, but I'm just not sure how it applies to my family or don't know how to use it, then the club might be um, just what you're looking for. So robingobel.com slash the club to see when the club opens again in the future, put yourself on the waiting list. Now, if you're a professional and you want to work with families in this way, what you can check out is my program Being With, which is uh, a year-long immersion program in supporting the parents, the caregivers of kids with vulnerable nervous systems, big baffling behaviors, 
And that program runs January through December. You can go check it out depending on when you hear this, this uh, podcast will depend on kind of where we are in the process. Um, we might, I might be in an accepting application process. I might be in an enrolling process. You just never know. So robingobel.com slash being with, and that's an amazing program where you can get really, really steeped in all the science, all the neuroscience, all the neurobiology, and then also get very, very practical tools on how to help the parents of the kids that you're working with. So again, specific to this episode, the trauma, memory, and behavior stuff, robingobel.com slash video series. I, as always, am just, oh, let me just take even a breath. So grateful. I mean, especially this, this episode was really long and pretty dense. So if you've gotten to the end, you're amazing. Thank you for um, just continuing to show up for yourself, right? That you're, 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 you're seeking ways to help, to help you feel better, to help your kid feel better, to help the kids that you work with feel better. And I'm positive. You don't hear enough that it matters. It matters a lot. It matters. Even if you aren't seeing behavior change, I promise that your work, the work that you're doing, um, to shift to this neurobiology lens. It matters. It matters to you. It matters to your kids. It matters to the future of, I really believe it matters to the future of, of humanity to the planet. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Next week, I'm going to do another episode about memory and it's going to be specifically about implicit memory only and memories that are only implicit. So experiences basically that happen when we're babies, infants, toddlers, and how that is still impacting memory and how that is still impacting our behavior. Even though we don't remember experiences from our infancy and toddlerhood, those experiences are still stored in our memory networks and still impact us to this day in actually pretty profound ways. So we'll do that next week. Thank you so much. Can't wait to have you back next week. Are you ending this episode with maybe a big sigh of relief? Like, Yes, finally, someone gets me and my kids, but also maybe a sense of like, okay, but now what? All right, y'all, I've got lots of possible now what's. If you want to connect with me directly, like pick my brain, have access to me almost every day, not to mention hundreds of other parents from around the world who totally get what it's like to be you then you're going to want to join us in the club. We have monthly live events, including groups for siblings of dysregulated kids, a huge video library with something like 80 or 90 videos, plus transcripts and certificates of completion. Plus, of course, a very active forum that I'm participating in every single day. We open for new members periodically. So go check robingobel.com slash the club. If we aren't open now, you can put yourself on the waiting list and I'll let you know the moment we open for new members. That's robingobel.com slash the club. 
Now, if you're a professional and you want to strengthen your capacity to work with the families of kids with big baffling behaviors and vulnerable nervous systems, plus use all of my materials, including a 12-module course that follows raising kids with big baffling behaviors, plus be included in an online searchable directory so families all over the world could find you, then you're looking for Being With, which is my year-long immersive training program that runs January through December. So you'll want to go to robingobel.com slash being with, read all about it. And if you're interested, put yourself on that waiting list too. Now, if you just maybe need a little extra connection and co-regulation, but don't feel like you need to join the club, then you can just keep listening to my podcast. Or you could go subscribe to my Start Here podcast, and that'll give you 10 episodes in order that will take you through cultivating a great foundation of parenting with regulation, connection, and felt safety. That's at robingobel.com slash start here. You have to go there. You can't just find it in your podcast app. Or you can get yourself a copy of Raising Kids with Big Baffling Behaviors, paper book, audio book, ebook. You can get that anywhere books are sold. Or you can just head to my website download one of my very many free resources. I keep them all really easy to access at robingobel.com slash free resources. Webinars, masterclasses, eBooks, infographics, all sorts of stuff. Go check it out. See what of those things could be supportive of you or maybe to the other adults in your life who are helping support you and your child. There are just so many ways that you and I could be more connected and you can get the amount of co-regulation and support that you need. If it feels like a lot to remember, all you have to do is go to robingobel.com and take your time clicking around, seeing what I got there. I am so, so glad you and I are connected now and I can't wait to be with you again soon in our next episode of The Baffling Behavior Show. Bye-bye, y'all.